Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about what we owe to Tang Dynasty fiction. I have been reading Ken Liu's short story collection, The Hidden Girl and Other Stories. Some of you may be familiar with Ken Liu or Liu Yukun in Chinese. He is a Chinese-American sci-fi fantasy writer and the author of the epic fantasy series The Dandelion Dynasty. He's also the author of the highly regarded short story collection The Paper Managery and Other Stories. In addition, he is the English language translator for the famous Chinese sci-fi trilogy, The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixin. Now, I can't help feeling a certain level of kinship with Ken Liu. We have a fair bit in common. For one thing, we both went to law school. More to the point, though, we both emigrated to the West at about the same age. He at 11, I at 12. And it seems to me that we have both held on to the corpus of Chinese traditional learning to an extent that is unusual among the diaspora. And Ken Liu often draws on Chinese traditions in his fiction in a way that I imagine is largely lost on his Western readers. Take his epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty. I have read the first entry, The Grace of Kings, and it was obvious to me within just a few pages that the book was a retelling of the history of the founding of the Han Dynasty, which, by the way, we have covered on this podcast. In fact, The Grace of Kings so faithfully tracks history that the retelling is almost beat by beat. Basically, he took real history, changed everyone's name, and then set the story in a made-up country instead of China. Then he won a Locus Award. It reminds me of what George R. R. Martin said about his Song, and Ice, Song of Ice and Fire series, also known as, of course, Game of Thrones, which is substantially influenced by European history, by the uh, episodes such as The War of the Roses. I think he said something along the lines of, you write a history book and tell people it's history, and nobody wants to read it. You dress it up as fiction and tell everybody that you made it up, and suddenly they can't get enough of it. So I was reading The Hidden Girl and Other Stories, and I came to the title story, The Hidden Girl, And here is this note at the start of it. Beginning in the 8th century, the imperial court of Tang Dynasty China increasingly relied on military governors, the Jie Du Shi, whose responsibilities began with border defense, but gradually encompassed taxation, civil administration, and other aspects of political power. They were, in fact, 
independent feudal warlords, whose accountability to imperial authority was nominal. Rivalry among the governors was often violent and bloody. Now we have touched on this before as well on this podcast. After the Anshi Rebellion from 755 to 763 AD, the Tang Empire, though it survived, was dramatically weakened, and the Golden Age of the Early Tang was no more. The Tang Dynasty would manage to limp on until 907 AD, but in reality, during its last century and a half, most of the real power rested in the hands rested in the hands of the Jiadushi, the military governors. So, after this note, Ken Liu then goes on to tell the story of the young daughter of a general serving one of the Jiadushi. A mysterious Buddhist nun, or Bichuni, or Bikuni in the Pali language of ancient India, appears and kidnaps the girl. She takes her up into the mountains, the nun, and trains her in the highest forms of kung fu and the stealthy ways of the ninja assassin. After the girl has grown up. And completed her training, the nun sends her back out into the world to assassinate one political figure or another, and thereby become a force operating in the shadows that secretly steers the course of Chinese history. When the nun sends her to kill one particular Jiadushi, however, she is so impressed. By the way, that her would-be target handles himself, that she switches sides and begins to work for him. When the nun sends her fellow students after the Jiadushi to complete the mission, she fights them and protects her new lord. At some point, at some point, Ken Liu tells us the girl's name. But even before that, I had that tingling feeling again that I had when reading *The Grace of Kings* and recognizing it to be a retelling of Chinese history. When I came upon the girl's name, there was no more doubt. Her name, Ken Liu writes, is Ying Niang, the Hidden Girl. That's why the story is called *The Hidden Girl*. Now, Yingyang in Chinese is actually probably more literally translated as the hidden woman or the hidden lady. Ken Liu doesn't tell us her surname, but we know it. It's Nie. We know it because Nie Yingyang, the hidden lady Nie, is a famous late Tang Dynasty short story. Its author was a man, a man named Pei Xing, about whom little is known, other than that, in his early years, he served as secretary to a Jiadushi, and in 878 A.D. he became the the deputy Jiadushi of Chengdu, which is in today's Sichuan province. His greatest achievement in life then 
was most likely in composing works of fiction, such as the Hidden Lady Nie. Ken Liu's version closely tracks the original tale to the point of almost amounting to a translation, to be honest, of the original. I assume that fact is entirely lost on most of his Western English language readers, but it is perfectly apparent to me. And that got me thinking a lot about literature, what endows it with value, and whether translation amounts to fresh writing. As some writers have pointed out, even in the initial composition of an original work, the writer is, in a sense, only translating a vision from his or her mind into prose that can be placed on the page. And, of course, it's gotten me thinking about what we owe to the ancients. It's not only Ken Liu who owes a great deal to Pei Xing, who wrote the original legend of Nie Ying Niang. The famous Taiwanese art house filmmaker, Hou Xiaoxian, made a film adaptation of the story in English called The Assassin. It came out in 2015 and competed at the Cannes Film Festival. The entire wuxia, or martial arts fantasy genre of fiction, and later film and television, long a staple of Hong Kong and other Asian cinema, and more recently imported into Hollywood and globalized through such works as The Matrix and Kill Bill, very clearly traces its origin to Nie Ying Niang, and other late Tang Dynasty fiction. Also, can we be real for a second? A protagonist trained by a mysterious, elusive, and maybe sinister mentor to become an unstoppable assassin, who then switches sides when he's sent to kill one specific target, and then has to fend off fellow, fellow assassins trained by the same mentor? Isn't that the plot of the Jason Bourne movies. And now Hollywood is busy trying to put female protagonists at the center of traditionally male-oriented action adventures and spy thrillers. On Netflix, you can browse movies featuring a strong female protagonist as a category. Hey, Chinese literature was already doing that back in the early Middle Ages. So I feel like saying what Picasso said when he first saw those Stone Age cave paintings. We have invented nothing. Although on the subject of the origin of the wuxia genre, I'd like to take into account the opinion of Jin Yong. As you may recall, we did an episode on Jin Yong a while back. He was the greatest and most popular wuxia author of all time, and one of the best-selling authors in any language of all time. So naturally, his thoughts on wuxia carry quite a bit of weight. In the afterword to one of his novels, Jing Yong named what he thought, what he considered, the founding document of wuxia. It is not Nie Ying Niang, 
for all of its superhuman fight scenes. It is instead another late Tang short story, one without any fighting, called Chuan, or The Tale of the Man with the Dragon Beard, written around 900 AD by a Taoist priest named Du Guangting. The Man with the Dragon Beard is set some 300 years earlier, during the Sui Dynasty and the early Tang Dynasty. And here is a brief synopsis. <laughs> during the last years of the Sui Dynasty, an enterprising young man from a humble background named Li Jing, who, by the way, is a real historical figure, visits one of the top ministers of the Sui government, hoping to get a job. The minister turns him away, but not before Li Jing catches the eye of a beautiful young woman employed at the minister's household as a singer. That night, she follows Li Jing to his hotel and proposes marriage. Yes, you heard that right. She proposes marriage to him. She explains that she overheard the conversation that Li Jing had with the minister and can see that he is a young man of uncommon ability. Her advice to him is not to seek a position within the Sui regime at all, because the Sui dynasty is rotten to the core and will soon collapse. Instead, he should seek his fortune elsewhere, and on this adventure, she would like to join him. Struck by her beauty and intelligence, Li Jing accepts her proposal. So now the two of them are traveling together as a couple, and they meet the man with the dragon beard, a strange and striking figure who freely admits to having just murdered an enemy and literally carries that man's severed head with him. Moreover, the man with the dragon beard believes that when the Sui dynasty collapses, which will be soon, he will lead an army of his own and rise up to become emperor. There's only one problem with his plan, he says. Having some knowledge of astrology and fortune-telling, he can see that someone in the city of Taiyuan is radiating an energy greater than his own. Whoever it is may carry a destiny superior to his. Hearing this, Li Jing says, mm, he has some idea of who this might be. He has heard stories. It may be the son of the general in command of the army garrison in Taiyuan, a young man named Li Shiming. Now, at this point in the story, readers in the late Tang era would already know who this was and how the story would turn out, because Li Shiming was the personal name of Emperor Taizong of the Tang, one of the greatest rulers in Chinese history, whose portrait, by the way, is the cover image of this podcast. Okay, so the three of them visit Taiyuan together to get a good look at this young Li Shiming. 
As soon as the man with the dragon beard sees Li Shiming, he recognizes him as the once and future emperor, the beloved of the gods, the chosen one, the true and destined son of heaven. So he encourages Li Jing and his new wife to stay in Taiyuan and work for the future emperor. But for himself, the man with the dragon beard says that he must seek his destiny elsewhere. So he bids his friends farewell, but says that in 15 years or so, they should hear news of dramatic political change in a foreign country southeast of China. When they hear it, they will know that he has achieved his goal. The story then fast forwards to the 10th year of the reign of Emperor Taizong of the Tang, the greatest and wisest Chinese emperor of all time. Li Jing, having helped to establish the Tang dynasty, is now a high-ranking official. News comes that in a foreign country to the southeast, a Chinese man leading a 100,000 followers has entered the capital and declared himself the new king. Li Jing goes home to tell his wife the news, and they drink a toast to their old friend. The end. Like I said, not a single fight scene. But we can see the elements that so influenced writers like Jin Yong. There is the use of history, of fictionalizing historical figures and having them interact with wholly fictional ones, of having the plot depend on what really happened in history and is in fact well known to the reader. In this case, the fact that Li Shiming really did grow up to become Emperor Taizong. Then there are the characters. Wuxia isn't really about fighting. It's about characters who exhibit, who exhibit certain heroic qualities that we really don't see in real life. This is why it's often compared to chivalric writing, chivalric romances in uh, European tradition. In this case, the characters display a, a sharper understanding of themselves, a greater decisiveness in their actions, and of course, a superior sense of destiny that we merely ordinary people are capable in real life. I like to imagine that the authors, the authors of these stories had a, a comparable sense of themselves. I like to imagine that Du Guangting, the priest who wrote The Man with the Dragon Beard, and Pei Xing, who wrote The Hidden Lady Nie, had some inkling, perhaps, that 1100 years later, their writings would still reverberate through the wuxia novels of Jin Yong, through the sci-fi fantasy fiction of Ken Liu, and through the cinema, not only of Asia, but also 
through their Hollywood derivatives. So that the entire world is touched to some extent by these stories. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.